Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for July 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. It's been a busy week in the news world here in New Mexico, so let's get right into the headlines impacting our area. Albuquerque's police chief is calling on the state's attorney general to review the case of a teenage boy's death in a house fire. It broke out after authorities tried to arrest a man inside that house. Chief Harold Medina is promising action if the police are found to have contributed to the 15-year-old's death. A New Mexico judge has cleared a former police officer of criminal charges accused of killing a suspect with a chokehold more than two years ago. Defense attorneys for former Las Cruces police officer Christopher Smelzer had argued prosecutors failed to prove his actions were dangerous and created a risk of death or great bodily harm to the victim, 40-year-old Antonio Valenzuela, in February 2020. The city agreed earlier to pay Valenzuela's family $6.5 million and ban the use of chokeholds by its police officers. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission says there are no environmental reasons that would prevent a New Jersey-based company from storing tons of spent nuclear fuel from commercial power plants around the country. It would be coming here to New Mexico. Those tons of nuclear fuel, those are going to be in drums, up to 10,000 of them. This is a key step as Holtec International tries to secure a license to build a facility between Hobbs and Carlsbad to store that waste. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and members of the state congressional delegation have been vocal opponents to the project. Uh, so is the public. We're going to hear from a state senator who's also been opposed in about 15 minutes right here on the podcast. There are some important details there that you'll want to know. New Mexico State Representative Debbie Armstrong has resigned from her legislative seat. She says she needs time to focus on providing care for a family member. The Bernalillo County Commission now will have to appoint a replacement until the public elects a successor. Armstrong announced last year that she wouldn't run again, leaving the Albuquerque district that she's represented since 2014. Some good news for the state economy and for anyone who likes seeing New Mexico landscapes and major film productions like Stranger Things. New Mexico's film and TV industry has hit a new peak. Governor Lujan Grisham says production companies spent a record $855 million on films, TV series, and other media in the fiscal year. That ended in June 30th. In-state spending by the industry also increased by 36% this year. Otero County commissioners have inserted themselves back into state headlines after voting 3 to nothing on a resolution saying abortion clinics are not welcome there. Abortion procedures are still legal in New Mexico, and this is a non-binding resolution. The resolution says abortion procedures aimed at protecting the health of a mother, quote, will take place in a local hospital under the care of a physician, end quote, and that the county takes a neutral position in instances involving incest or rape. Abortion has obviously been a major flashpoint. That's since the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Two weeks ago, correspondent Gwyneth Dolan spoke with an ACLU attorney who explained the impacts of executive action from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. That action is meant to protect women traveling from out of state for reproductive care here in New Mexico. It also protects the doctors who treat those women. Now, this week on our show, Gene and our line opinion panelists explored the political implications of that order and how this issue could impact the race for governor. Those panelists this week are attorney Sophie Martin, public health expert and former president of the American Public Health Association, Michael Byrd, and Merritt Allen from Vox Optima Public Relations. Here's Gene. 
There have been some significant developments in the governor's race over the last few weeks, like new ads from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and Republican nominee Mark Ronchetti. And a fresh look at who's leading fundraising. We'll get into all those things, but I want to start with the impact of a leading social issue right now, as you know, abortion. Unlike some states, the procedure is still legal and available in New Mexico for now. Now, with that in mind, Sophie, let me start with you. Do you think the issue will drive turnout the way Democrats are hoping? And I'm so I'm seeing this all over Facebook that this is the one issue that's going to turn out Democrats like crazy. Is that actually the case here? I think actually that it will drive turnout, um, especially to the extent that the governor can make clear. Um, well, first of all, I think it's going to drive turnout in general because, mm -hmm. because our communities are very focused on political issues, on the outcomes of elections and that those outcomes have real meaning. And also, I think there's been a real turn toward, in, at least in the Democratic Party, um, a, a greater awareness amongst the electorate that local politics matter, that local decisions, um, especially with the Supreme Court and the Dobbs opinion, turning the question of abortion back to the states, local, local elections are going to be even more meaningful mm -hmm. um, in the coming years. So, so yeah, I do think it will turn out um, voters for uh, the Democrats and, and, and may also for Republicans as well. There's some polling that suggested that it might be more meaningful, more powerful for Democrats. But, but um, this is all going to hinge, I think, on the governor's um, ability and her focus on really demonstrating that the protections that she's been putting in place over the last couple of weeks for doctors, for patients, mm -hmm. for individuals coming in from other states, you know, to, to secure abortion services here, that these all ride on, at this moment, many of them on governor actions, on, on administrative actions, mm -hmm. and are not necessarily cemented in our state laws. And so you get a new governor, you could get a totally different landscape in terms of some of these protections. Good point there. Uh, Merritt, interesting point made by Sophie, but I'm, I have to ask, I'm a little bit curious, in many ways it's a long way from July to November, but it's short, if you know what I mean here in political terms. Can she keep this going and others just keep things going all the way to November? And in fact, does it perhaps, as Sophie mentioned, help Republicans in some way as well? Well, I think it's interesting that this um, is kind of coming to the forefront in the governor's race because, as Sophie pointed out, for local elections, it's much more uh, impactful in legislative races mm. because the governor does not, it's not the governor who writes with a pen. Uh, a single pen stroke, gov uh, abortion shall be illegal or illegal in the state of New Mexico, that would be the legislature. Mm -hmm. And so these ads we're seeing that the governor, the next governor will have, a, uh, will have a say in abortion in New Mexico, I think that's terribly misleading mm -hmm. uh, in one of these third party attack ads. Um, it's actually the legislature. And as trends show, I don't see the legislature moving to any sort of Republican majority. Mm -hmm. So I don't think um, we're in any particular danger in New Mexico of uh, uh, abortion rights being severely d diminished. Mm -hmm. I just don't see that happen. How about Mr. Ron Ketty, uh, Merritt? Is this, is this something he can throw over his hip, so to speak? Can he get out from under this? Because we're going to talk about this in a second. He's actually opened his, you know, mouth on this a couple of times, and now he's trying to get out from under some things. <laughs> now well, they get some attack ads. He, good. He's very good at um, being very emphatic about the point he make, wants to make right now. Right. And the point he wants to make right now is uh, 
uh, some common sense limitations on procedure. Uh, uh, 15, uh, you know, no restrictions up to 15 weeks, and then medically necessary or in cases of uh, rape or incest. I think 80% of voters would go along with that. Right. Of course, you know, it's, it's a very common sense middle of, of the road approach. Mm-hmm. In uh, New Mexico, uh, we have no restrictions uh, whatsoever. So that would be a throttling back of uh, uh, some uh, uh, some access. But I think very significant. It would be, you know, maybe a handful of cases performed mm-hmm. each year in New Mexico. I would say less than 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't see that as a significant uh, reduction uh, reduction in access. But, you know, it's, it's to the point. He is a very persuasive uh, communicator and is able to um, uh, make very emphatic points based on the talking point he wants to get across at the moment. Mm-hmm. Michael, uh, Sophie mentioned, and I mentioned in the governor's uh, executive action on abortion rights at the top of the show, it protects women from prosecution if they come to New Mexico for reproductive care. This is clearly an issue the governor cares about, as Sophie articulated well, and this action has a practical impact. Could it have a, a political one too, proof that she's committed to this issue? Does this firm her up with, with the base and anybody else that's looking to vote for her? Well, I think it, I, I think it does for her. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all part of, you know, sort of, um, I think the sled, state legislature as well as, because a, a year ago, Linda Lopez, the state Senator uh, already was sponsoring some legislation um, to decriminalize um, a, the decriminalize uh, abortion mm-hmm. so that there were would not be so that providers in would not be adversely impacted by by providing uh, abortion or abortion services so i i think that um i think that's one point i think the other point is new mexico um as we all know unfortunately is 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 a poor state mm-hmm. and and so our poverty rates are high and that had it has implications across the board in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, and everything else. Um, and it is a my, we are a m- minority majority state, mm-hmm. so that I think clearly weighs into because the 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 um, the abortion um, the overturn of by the Supreme Court of, of, of access and availability of, of, of to abortion uh, really significantly impacts uh, women of color. And, and and poor women. And um, so I think that, you know, those communities, those populations who and, and they've had access to it here in New Mexico. So it's 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 not something you would you can just uh, take a once somebody has it, it's more difficult to take it away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'll see how this plays out in terms of the, the Supreme Court going forward. That's right. You know, Sophie, interesting. There's a bit of a Twitter war erupting over a different ad. There's the one <laughs> where against Mr. Ronchetti uh, says he is opposed to abortion, or is it at all stages, uh, which he's fighting back, and Merrick just uh, pointed out. But this one, Mr. Ronchetti calls embarrassingly fake. It features a Portalis nurse who says she couldn't have graduated without the Governor's Opportunity Scholarship. Um, I'll let you get into some of the details if you'd like to, but essentially there was confusion over when the nurse was actually in school versus when the scholarship was first available. But the fact is she received some money, and she graduated. Is this something voters will notice or remember, or is this just one of those technical little blips in the road here, just groping for an ad? 
I frankly don't think it is something that voters will remember, uh, at least not in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. I do think that um, Mr. Ronchetti's supporters may continue to kind of latch onto it and use it as as um, sort of a reminder of their own motivation or something like that. But I don't think that for the most part, Democratic voters are likely to care very much about this particular um, he said, she said. Um, we do see there is a, at least one reporter who's saying, well, actually, I think that the, the details in this um, this ad are accurate, but mm-hmm. that's not going to matter right. to Ron Ketty supporters. So, you know, it, this kind of squabbling might serve at some point to um, diminish the drive for particular voters who are like on the fence to go in and vote. But mm. I, I think so far from the election, this is just... It's something to keep their names in the news, something to squabble over. Mm-hmm. I don't you think know, it's got a big impact. Good point there. Uh, Merritt, we've got to get this in. Fundraising will be a major factor this race, no doubt about it. In the latest report, Mr. Ronchetti pulled in about $450,000 more than the governor in that last reporting period. But the governor, of course, still has a major cash advantage. Uh, will Mr. Ronchetti have to make up that gap to compete in November? I mean, it's a, about a mill. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Go buy a lot of TV, the gap. But what's, what's your sense of that? I think he will. I also think he can't. Um, okay. He is. He's. Uh, uh, his team is uh, highly successful at fundraising. Uh, we saw this in Susanna Martinez's two races. Um, I, I don't think money is going to be a problem uh, for Mark Ronchetti. I think the flavor of this race is going to be a race to the center, mm-hmm. uh, showing uh, that the the most uh, popular uh, issues, uh, jobs, the economy. Um, uh, taxes, all the things that New Mexicans care the most about while disparaging the other candidates. So it's going to be a, a negative slugfest, right. uh, a race to the middle. I mean, if you'd asked Mark Ronchetti how he felt about abortion in March in the height of a highly partisan primary, we would have never heard what we're uh, hearing right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, if you'd asked uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham in the Democratic primary in 2018 what she thought about uh, cutting taxes, no, she would have never gone for a tax cut as she did uh, in the uh, 22, uh, 2022 uh, legislative session. Mm-hmm. So both uh, both candidates have moved to the center. It's going to be uh, very moderate politically on issues, but very nasty personally. Mm-hmm. Hey, Michael, in the money chase here, Mr. Roncotti's big donors were farmers, ranchers and energy executives. No big surprise there. But the governor got big donations from um, the Mexico tribal governments and a political action committee affiliated with PNM employees. Very interesting there. Does that say anything to you? Who's donating to who and, and why? Uh, well, for me, it's no surprise. I mean, it's it's kind of it. That's how things in New Mexico and, and tend to align anyway. Yeah. In terms of, you know, who who do those interests represent uh, bo- on both on both sides? Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that the tribes are lining up, and I'm glad tribes are more engaged, mm-hmm. have, you know, and have been increasingly so. If, 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 we're, if we forgot got about Gary Johnson in Indian gaming, it, it was, mm-hmm. it's a very quick history. Please. The tribes went to Bruce King, who was the incumbent governor, Democrat, and, and asked for his support for gaming. He refused to do, to act on it. So... And I'm sure his assumption was, well, what are the tribes going to do? Do they going to go support the Republican Johnson? They did. Guess right. what? He won. 
So I think there's growing and, and much needed in the state, greater visibility and economic and political influence that tribes did not have prior to gaming. Mm -hmm. And that, that's important for New Mexico because the, the population of the community that has been continues to be marginalized in, by any measure historically and to this date it, are native populations. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Gene, and thanks to our panelists. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned the new developments and plans to make New Mexico a dumping ground for up to 10,000 canisters of nuclear waste from all around the country. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission recommended Holtec International's license be approved to store nuclear waste between Hobbs and Carlsbad. That's a significant step that makes this a lot more likely to happen, but it's important to remember that it's still not a done deal. In a statement, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham says that the decision will threaten the health and safety of generations of New Mexicans. Now, earlier this year, Our Land executive producer Laura Paskus spoke with State Senator Jeff Steinborn about this proposal. We recorded the interview in April, before the NRC's decision to recommend approval of Holtec's license, so keep that in mind. But this interview gives us some unique context on the situation and what would need to happen to stop it. I want to talk specifically about Holtec International and its plans for southeastern New Mexico. Kind of just in a nutshell, what is their plan? Yeah, so this company Holtec International has got an application with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which regulates spent nuclear fuel, high-level nuclear waste in the country. They have an application to create what's called a consolidated interim storage facility in the state of New Mexico and to be licensed to ship uh, basically the entire up to and beyond the entire nation's current supply of spent nuclear fuel. Um, and uh, it would be a 40-year license with an opportunity to extend for another 40 years. And it's it's got a lot of terrifying um, facets to it, which I will certainly go into, but it's, it's very different from what we're used to in the state. And I think a lot of people confuse this with the WIP facility in Southeastern New Mexico. WIP is, is low level waste. It's basically defense facility waste like gloves and, you know, clothing and things like that used in, you know, plutonium production and testing and, uh, but a lower level of radioactivity and, and kind of uh, danger, I guess, exposure to, to people. And it is a federal facility buried almost a mile underground in a salt cavern, basically. What this, is, what this proposal is, is a private company that wants to store this material in canisters, also licensed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, basically partially on the surface and partially buried. And the fact that it would be owned by a private company and not the federal government just carries lots of additional risks to the state. So I'll, I'll stop right there and so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is you mentioned this is waste that's coming from nuclear power plants. So there are nuclear power plants in different communities throughout the country where private companies have operated nuclear power facilities, selling electricity, fueling entire economies. And now there's this waste product and they want to send that to New Mexico. This seems like a, a this seems like a bad deal for us. Can yeah. you talk about the the sort of privatization of this waste and and what whole like where does Holtec fit into this? How do they get that waste and why do they send it here? Yeah, so Holtec is a company 
that really up till now has not been, they've been a supplier of the nuclear, of the nuclear power generation industry. And they've kind of recently got into the waste side of it and even bought a decommissioned power plant and, and now actually has title to some spent nuclear fuel, some canisters of spent fuel. So um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, private um, nuclear power companies, as you said, generate um, this nuclear waste as a byproduct of creating nuclear power. Basically, it's these rods that are used to generate, um, generate energy and power and heat. And then they're put, once they lose enough to generate power, they're then put into these cooling ponds and then they're put into what these, what's called dry cast storage. Yeah, and they are now full of this stuff. And the federal government has had a legal mandate since the 80s to find a permanent repository. And that's where Yucca Mountain came in. That was gonna be the permanent repository. And under federal law, the federal government is responsible for uh, finding a permanent repository. Well, that did not work out because Yucca Mountain has been terminated as a project, at least it did under President Obama. Congress, there's some in Congress trying to restart that project. But uh, so meanwhile, these power companies, they're left holding this material. Granted, they generated generated it, and those communities did. And in all fairness, New Mexico uses a little bit of nuclear power too from the Palo Verde nuclear plant in Arizona. But I mean, we're less than one half of 1% of the nation's population to keep things in perspective. And, uh, and we are going to be weaning ourselves off nuclear power also, which is part of our utilities plan. So yeah, they, they want to get rid of this stuff. The communities that have this waste nearby want to get rid of it. And so this idea of, a, since the permanent storage has not worked out, this idea of interim storage has kind of come up and it's a convenient solution for the industry to get rid of their waste so that they can produce more of it. And for the communities, frankly, they have this waste, they don't want it. And so it's a really, it creates very interesting dynamics of haves and have nots in the country. And this is where New Mexico is really embroiled in a national debate and this is a national policy issue. So you mentioned it's an interim storage facility and the NRC is working on a 40 year license. Yeah. What happens at the end of the 40 years? Where does it go once it's not an interim storage here? Yeah, well, that's the rub. And that's, that's definitely one of the big problems is there is no permanent facility. And scientifically, everybody acknowledges that there needs to be a permanent repository that this stuff will be radioactive for a very long time needs to be put someplace safe for a very long time and the federal government actually defines repository their legal responsibility means a deep geological repository so that is the structural bar that the federal government has legally set up that we have to achieve as a country the problem is they don't have one and so so what everybody has a lot of our congressional leaders our governor has said is that we will become the permanent de facto site because there is no permanent facility. And uh, it's certainly not designed to be the forever site. I mean, it's an interim facility. It's obviously not a deep geological solution. And, uh, and beyond that, these dry casks are not, there's not a dry cask in existence. The, the technology hasn't even been around uh, longer than a couple decades. So what, so the, the concern here, one of my many concerns is that we are, technologically being asked to be a guinea pig for what happens when we start to get a few decades out and we have all these canisters sitting in the desert in southeastern New Mexico. What if they start to fail on a massive scale? But um, yeah, it's and then what happens if the country goes, uh, if, the, if that company goes bankrupt? 
they're required to put up a bond with this, but who would then be required to take over this waste and where would it go? It could be an absolute disaster. So yeah, it's all of these are question marks without answers. They're not really question marks. They're questions without answers because there's no permanent solution. So New Mexico, this is basically a private sector solution being hoisted upon New Mexico right now in lieu of a real federal solution, which is what's needed. So you and Representative Matthew McQueen introduced House Bill 137, which right. did not pass this session. Can you tell me a little bit about what that bill would have done and, and what happened with it? Yeah, it's uh, what the bill would have done is it would have barred New Mexico, barred companies from storing high-level nuclear waste in the state of New Mexico until a federal permanent repository was in operation. And initially the bill started off as just a complete ban on, on storing the materials here. And then we, we uh, amended it to say that it couldn't happen until there was a federal repository. And so, but the bill also did some other things as well. It, it strengthens the state's um, radioactive consultation task force, which is something we created in law around the time when WIP came into existence. We created it for the state government to have kind of a executive branch interagency level working group to look at radioactive waste or no sorry uh yeah radioactive issues and um and then you know specifically be the interface with the federal facility so this bill would have also strengthened that to include private facilities and add more members to it so it's one of my obviously big disappointments that we did not um, get this done this last session so, and I think I read that Texas passed a similar bill and I know other states, you know, you mentioned Yucca Mountain, Nevada successfully pushed back against um, the permanent repository. I've seen other states. Why is it that New Mexico seems to keep having this issue and who in the state is, is like for it? It seems like so many people are against it. Who is a who's for it here? Well, there's some political leaders in southeastern New Mexico. New Mexico is a little unique because we do have the country's only national low-level nuclear waste storage facility, WIP. Um, there were a lot of concerns when that facility came into being. Now they have a uranium enrichment facility there called Uranco. Um, and so they've developed a comfort level. Um, some political leaders in southeastern New Mexico with kind of this economic sector. And so they saw an opportunity actually and they're the ones who put this in motion some of the political leadership in southeastern new mexico they recruited holtec into submitting a this proposal to the nuclear regulatory commission so there's some of the big leaders for it um ironically right across the border um in texas the oil industry is super against it because obviously we see the economics of oil and gas and how hot the permian basin is and they recognize the risk of having an accident in the middle of that of that um, economic activity. So our dynamics are a little different here. Um, and so unfortunately, it's we I see the support kind of fissure along partisan lines, which is unfortunate. Um, but you know, having said that, it's not we, we have bipartisan, we have unique support across industries that don't typically work together that are opposed to it in New Mexico. But yeah, I think the other problem we have here is we have a much shorter session. And, you know, with a 30 day session, Texas has a 144 day session. They, you know, and they had a very powerful economic industry 
pushing for it. Whereas in our, our state, you know, we have the environmental community, which, uh, you know, the economic industry sometimes has more political muscle. But, uh, you know, the bill's gotten pretty far both times. It just it just didn't get pulled up for a final vote. And I, uh, I'm disappointed and I'm not going to make excuses for anybody um, and why they didn't bring it up for a vote. But, uh, you know, this bill, a different variation of this bill passed the Senate last year. This time it would have absolutely passed the House if it had been brought up for a vote and I believe would have passed the Senate. So I think we're right there in New Mexico, um, but it is a missed opportunity that we didn't pass the bill, that's for sure. So in thinking about the support for for Holtec, for this industry in that part of the state, are we talking about like entire communities and thousands of people? Or are we talking about, you know, a few people? It's a really good question. There's not unanimous support by any means in that part of the state um, for this, but people all over the state are absolutely opposed to it. Um, the proposal is to bring in this waste, these casts through rail, and it would come in through all parts of New Mexico via armed guard and um, different communities around the state from Las Cruces that I represent to Albuquerque and the all Indian Pueblo Council of Governors have passed resolutions saying they don't want this waste coming through their community. Um, resolutions representing about 40% of the state's population. So a great number of people in the state absolutely do not want us to be the storage ground for this material. I know these things take time. There's a process. Where in the process are we? Is there still time for people to be involved? Kind of what's happening? We don't know when they're targeted to receive an, uh, a possible permit now because our license, because they're not, they haven't provided the Nuclear Regulatory Commission what they've been asked for. And, you know, that's where we're at. There, there's movement in Congress to certainly try to fight it. As you said, Texas passed a law um, banning it there in the state of Texas. Our attorney general in the state of Texas has filed suit against the federal government saying it's illegal to do consolidated interim storage because it violates states' rights, because states really have very narrow avenues to even have a voice in this process, which is outrageous. With un unlike a federal facility, which we have statutory veto power over, unless Congress overrides us, not so with a private facility. So it's really a weakness in federal law. And then finally, several days ago, Senator Heinrich introduced a bill with Senator Cruz. How's that for bipartisanship on spent nuclear fuel, um, basically prohibiting the use of, of a fund that utilities have been setting aside, uh, paying into, to ultimately ship this waste to a permanent repository. I think one of Holtec's business plans is to tap into that fund for this interim storage. And uh, so they introduced a bill, Senator Heinrich and Cruz, to prohibit the use of that money for which, so that'll be a good door to close if we can. So, so there you go. It's this thing's being fought on multiple levels, and we're certainly, you know, the governor is steadfast against this. And um, I certainly intend to introduce this bill again, even if they were to get a permit between now and next year. The facility will not be built by then, and um, or, or even started um, because there's a lot of rail issues that have to be worked out. So I'm going to keep fighting, and the citizens of New Mexico. What they can do is they can educate each other. They can thank you for reporting on this. That's so important so people can learn about the project. And, and there's groups around the state that are certainly, um, and I apologize, I don't have a website handy. I probably should have, but there's advocacy groups that are fighting this. People can get involved. They can speak up. They can let their legislators know, hey, next time you have an opportunity to vote on this, get this bill passed. 
take the bullseye off New Mexico. Thanks, Laura, for talking through that issue with Senator Steinborn, and thank you, Senator Steinborn, for giving us the time. Laura is going to keep following that issue. All of us at New Mexico in Focus and Our Land will. Before the end of the month, Laura is going to sit down with U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich to try to understand why this proposal is moving forward, despite what is visibly firm opposition from a majority of local, state, and federal leaders from New Mexico, not to mention the public. So keep an eye out for that in the next few weeks. Our final segment on the podcast this week was a really cool experience for me and our crew. At the beginning of the month, myself, two of our photographers, and New Mexico and Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez were lucky enough to get a look inside the newly redesigned exhibit at the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture in Santa Fe. It's called Here, Now, and Always. It's a permanent exhibit. It's been evolving since its inception 25 years ago, and it just reopened to the public at the beginning of the month. It highlights indigenous people of the Southwest with never-before-seen artifacts and some really cool technology. But it also sets the standard for collaborating with the Native American community. Antonia sat down with two curators involved with putting this together. Here, now, and always. This is an exhibit that using um, Native co-curation and many consultants to give voice to the Native people of the Southwest through their uh, words and the uh, material culture that their communities produce for that visitors to see and experience these vast and different and long-lived cultures in this region. So when visitors come to the exhibition, they'll be they'll come through the emergence tunnel, which is a transitory space, so that people, you know, as many uh, cultures in the Southwest and their origin stories talk about the beginnings, you know, from another earth and emerging onto this earth. This bronze sculpture by Roxanne Swensel that she created uh, at the earlier Here Now and Always that we wanted to keep the Earth Mother, Clay Mother, um, creating her people and then telling them to go forth. And so they're forth and she's pointing towards the entrance of the exhibition. And then they come out into the Cycles Hub. And then from that Cycles Hub, it's very it's circular and it's kind of broken up into the different themes of cycles. They can choose a direction they want to go through throughout the exhibit. So it's not just a maze, uh, but it's basically they can choose their own path. And why is it important that museums collaborate directly with indigenous people, especially if they're going to share information about indigenous communities? The best people to interpret a culture are usually the people from that culture themselves. They know the ins and outs. They know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to discuss. Um, in the past, that's always been an issue with museums. So many times Native people weren't comfortable in museums or um, they things were presented inaccurately are kind of like in this pan-Indian voice, um, you know, not recognizing the, the vast differences between many of the different people. Even just in our, you know, the, our corner of the country in the Southwest, the communities can be very different. So it's important to get that voice, that community voice, then so that they can present things that they want people to know and to let, you know, what they want the world to know about them. And to go along with that, why should museums, um, art spaces, present people as living cultures, living here now in this, you know, today's world instead of people of the past? A lot of times we see history books, museums, talking about Native Americans as in the past. It's very true. It's really important for Native people to be presented in the here and now because, and, you know, often, you know, in the popular culture, Native people are seen as how they were you know, in 1880 or so. And, you know, it's, that's well over a century now. And it's, what we're, we want to present is 
both that past, but also the present and hopefully the future, so that people can see that Native people in this region have a very long history here, you know, going back before any European and, you know, and before people you know, are even recording histories, and that it continues to this present day, that people are still living, working, and creating now. There's a dance group of Zuni Oyamainen, so it's not just one, but we only could put one in here. There's up to 11 of them, I think, and they sing and they dance and they're, they're really joyful and they've been practically around the world. They've been here in, at the museum a couple of times. Um, the jewelry was consigned out to jewelers at uh, Zuni and there's rings, there's pins, there's bracelets, there's earrings, and Mrs. Juanita Adaki made most of the outfit and painted the pot. This was quite um, an event for me to put this together because it took us about two and a half days before we could really get her um, straight. And it took about three or four people, if not more, um, to stand her, to dress her, and I think now the people in exhibits have learned to dress a Pueblo mannequin. That we are nations, not just Pueblos or tribes, that we are nations, that we're self-governing. And then it comes up into modern times when um, I included Deb Halen, and um, she was very gracious to donate her dress, the turquoise dress that she wore when she was sworn in to the U.S. House of Representatives as a representative from New Mexico, District 1. And then now she's um, Secretary of the Interior. She signifies um, sovereignty, not just to people of the Southwest, but to all Native people in the United States and in the hemisphere. And as a woman, being a woman helping curate and also just featuring Native women in this exhibit, not only in what you did here, but all throughout the exhibit. Why is that important? I think it's important because it shows women of all the tribes and all the work that we do, and it's recognized here. So I wanted to recognize both from young people like Marla Allison, who's like to me in her 20s, and then like to Zuni Oya Maiden, and the first Zuni Oya Maiden came and she's like a grandma, a great grandma, and this lady's uh, a grandmother and they're teachers. To me, that's the importance because the women are the teachers in the community, most of the communities. It's up to the women to relay home, community, and support, and just keep the family going. This one is by Lauren Aragon from uh, Acoma Pueblo. He actually was, he won a design award at the Phoenix Fashion Week a couple of years ago. And he came into the museum and we had already thought about asking him to create a piece for us because we wanted to get more you know, couture and the, and the collections. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be great if he took inspiration from a piece in collections? So he went through and looked uh, at the Acoma pieces and he selected this jar. So he selected this jar and this is his inspiration dress from that jar. One, I wanted not to show the standard pieces that kind of sometimes people expect, you know, those from like, you know, the major artists and such too. I also wanted to you know, acknowledge those things that um, uh, like the grandmothers make at their kitchen tables as well. That the things they also, they made for their communities, but also for to sell because they saw that as supporting their families and continuing the culture as well. And to teach their children how to do it. Um, and my grandmother taught all of her children how to pot, um, both boys and girls, because she said, one day you might need to make a living at this. 
and but also at the same time it was to continue that tradition of honoring and um, working with mother earth as well so there's these two things that join and so i wanted to do that but also wanted to choose things that came from many different areas that since i'm from a pueblo i just didn't want to, to have just only pueblo things but to really showcase all of the tribes not only in new mexico but in the greater southwest and i believe we have something from almost every um, currently recognized 20 Pueblos, including Isleta del Sur in Texas, and also from many different communities, both um, Navajo and Apache, the different groups, uh, Hickoria, uh, Apache, Muscalero, San Carlos, and, uh, but also the Dono Otam and Paiute as well. Um, so, as, and, you know, and our, our Hopi uh, neighbors in Arizona. So that, that there's, that when people come here, hopefully they'll be able to see at least, you know, something from their com community or region and that they'll also feel part of this huge experience. We wanted visitors to leave here happy, to know that, you know, we were our survivors and that we're not downtrodden or impoverished or anything like that, but that we're happy and that we convey not just to our own Pueblo, but to everybody in New Mexico and everybody in the world. Thank you, Antonia. Thank you, Tony Chavarria and Diane Bird for talking with us and explaining the vision behind the exhibit and all of the background on the pieces that they decided to include. I do have to say, as informative as it was to listen to that through audio, please go online and watch it on YouTube because some of the video that our photographers shot is absolutely amazing. It's really cool, really cool look at those artifacts and kind of how you make your way through the exhibit. It's a unique thing, so I recommend you do that. Go on YouTube and watch it. Actually, if you're listening to this before 7 o'clock on Friday the 15th, watch our show at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. You'll see it there. Uh, but either way, find a way to watch that or go see the exhibit yourself. It, it's definitely worth it. Again, it's called Here Now and Always. It's open to the public right now in Santa Fe at the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture. That's it for the podcast this week. I want to apologize for the delay on this episode. We've been working through some changes at New Mexico PBS, but we're going to keep things going. We're going to keep this thing going, and I appreciate everyone who took the time to listen this week. You can expect another episode early next week. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for July 15th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Enjoy the rest of your week.